out of necessity, be, need to be a little selective in some of the things here. So I wanted to select one other figure in church history who was a contemporary of Augustine. And they actually had a great deal of correspondence back and forth with one another. And his name is, so sorry if you were planning on a handout. I don't have a handout, so. Yeah, it's, here you go. Are you ready? Jerome. Jerome. Does that name sound familiar in church history? St. Jerome. St. Jerome. Yeah. Steve According to the Catholic. There's right here. Okay, so let me give you a little, uh, tell you where we're going here. I'm going to give you a little biography of Jerome. And then uh, we're going to talk about um, some of the issues that were leading up to a debate between Augustine and Jerome and how that played out for nearly, and actually still plays out to, even to today, but at least played out uh, until the Reformation era, especially in the Reformation era. So it has to do, it has to do with the doctrine of Scripture. So uh, Jerome, born in 345, 347-ish, he was um, uh, a monk, he was a Bible scholar, he was a theologian, uh, wrote commentaries, and was probably the most, I know this is saying a lot after we just looked at Augustine, but Jerome was probably the most learned man in the entire western half of the church. Um, he was one of, I, I've heard from some sources that say he was one of the only, or the only, uh, I think that I heard also heard that um, another guy that we haven't talked about, but uh, a guy named Origen, O-R-I-G-E-N, um, so it may be two, but it may be one, was one of the only Christians in the Christian church in the West in the first several hundred years, who actually knew Hebrew. He was the only one, except for perhaps Origen, who actually knew Hebrew. And as a matter of fact, he actually, he, he sort of taught it, and it was self-taught. He found a Jewish convert, a, a Jew who was a convert to Christianity, who tutored him uh, in, in Hebrew. And he became very fluent in Hebrew. So much so um, that uh, he did could do a translation of the entire Hebrew scriptures, which we'll get to in a second. So uh, he also did some other things. He was a major promoter of mon uh, of monasticism. So monasteries were becoming big here in the, the fourth century. Um, but and he's he wrote commentaries. He wrote other kinds of works. But he's most famous for his translation of the Bible into Latin. Was it the first translation of the Bible into Latin? Because at this point, uh, Latin was the dominant language in the western half of the Roman Empire. Uh, so it wasn't the first Latin translation, um, but it was probably the most significant, most influential. And that translation is called, anybody want to take a uh, stab at the name of that Latin translation? What's that? Is that the Vulgate? Vulgate, yes. The Latin Vulgate. V-U-L-G-A-T-E. Vulgate. What does it sound like? What did somebody say? Vulgar. Sound like vulgar? Yeah. Well, that, that's exactly 
that's exactly what the Latin word vulgar um, means common. So we, we use vulgar as in like saying, you know, gross words and, you know, bodily fluids yeah. and, you know, things like that. But it actually means just like kind of common, okay. common language. It would be the Latin equivalent of um, Koine. You guys remember here in Koine, did we talk about Koine Greek in the last? That was the common Greek. There was classical Greek, high Greek of the philosophers and stuff like that. But by the time we get to the first century, Koine Greek was the common language. And, and why? Why was the Greek, uh, the Koine Greek, such? Um, first of all, why was it common? And two, how, why did it become so widespread? Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great. Yep. And his process of. Remember the process that he was really all about? Hellenization. Hellenization, exactly. Hellenization, which is to Greekify the world. And he wanted everybody to have a common language. And so um, that actually outlived his, his Hellenization, outlived him. He died at 32, remember? I mean, the dude conquered half of the world by, by the time he was 32. So um, Koine Greek. Um, Vulgate would be kind of like the Latin equivalent of, of Koine Greek. Um, so here we go. Um, born in 345 or 347, we don't know exactly, in a region called Dalmatia, which would be modern-day Croatia, right on the border between Croatia and Italy. Looked at some pictures. It looks like a beautiful place right there off the Adriatic Sea. Um, in his late teens, he goes to school, he begins uh, his studies in Rome, um, and he studies logic and philosophy and rhetoric. He ends up being, this is, I thought this was very fascinating, he was baptized in Rome as a Christian at about the age of 25, 370-ish, um, and so he grew up in a Christian home. So I always think that's fascinating, if infant baptism was so widespread in the first centuries of the church. There's so many stories of these people who grew up in Christian homes and were not baptized. That's not the point. I just kind of noticed that. Uh, so he studies in Rome. It does really well in logic and philosophy and rhetoric, similar to Augustine. In about 372, so that puts him, what, uh, 27 years old? Uh, he, 20, 27. So yeah, 27 years old, he... Um, Decides to go on uh, travel east. He wanted to go to the Holy Land. Uh, he ended up settling in the uh, Syrian desert. So the very eastern side of modern-day Turkey or Syria, near Antioch. Um, and it's while he's there, he settles into um, kind of a pre-monastic kind of life. He becomes a hermit. He settles together with a bunch of other hermits out in the desert. And he devotes himself... Um, uh, partly, I think, to his, in his attempts for sanctification, he struggled with, with lusts. And so he, that's why he kind of wanted to go out into the wilderness and just go hang out with a bunch of guys out in the desert. Um, and he, one of, his, one of his, his way of thinking was, in order to kind of battle like worldly thoughts, I really want to throw my mind into philosophy and reading and those sorts of things. And so it's while he's there, he masters Hebrew. 
So he learns Hebrew. He, he actually even gets better at his Greek. So he speaks natively, he speaks Latin, but he um, was very proficient in Greek from his studies in Rome with logic and philosophy, and he taught himself Hebrew. Um, but he wasn't liked by the hermits uh, uh, there. I think he had kind of a prickly personality. So he, um, uh, he ends up leaving there. He goes to Antioch at a church there. He ends up being ordained as a presbyter, as an elder in the church there. And then he leaves after being ordained there after about a year or so. About 380 to 382, he goes up to Constantinople uh, to study with the Cappadocian Fathers. Do you remember from the last uh, series of classes, the Cappadocian Fathers? That name sound familiar? This is 380 to 382. By the way, what happened in three, right around in that period of time? Where? Yes. <laughs> uh, I'll say, if I say where, I'll give it away. Well, he moves to Constantinople. So what happens in Constantinople at around that time? They have a, not, not, council, right? Yeah, there was one in 325. In Nicaea, right? Yeah. But then in 380, it's in, Con in Constantinople, right? Yeah. Which is basically part two of this. Yeah. Right? 381, and this is where we get the, the council at Constantinople, and we get the Nicene-Constantinople Creed, which is, you know, hashing out some of those things. Well, when we talked about that, we talked about the Cappadocian Fathers. There were two guys named, had the same name. Yeah. Pepe's searching. He's yeah, scrolling. Searching. Find him, man. Find him. <laughs> One was Basil. Is the other Basil? They have the same name. <laughs> Daryl and my brother Daryl. <laughs> no, uh, Basil was the guy of the three, three Cappadocian fathers. He was the one that had his own name. <laughs> I'll just tell you. I'll just tell you. Uh, Gregory. The two Gregories. Gregory. There was Greg. And how do you tell them apart? One was Gregory of Nyssa, and one was Gregory of Nazianzus. And so they were all there. He studied under those guys who were very influential at that. So this guy gets around. I mean, he's studying philosophy in Rome. Uh, he goes and meets out with, you know, lives with some hermits out in the near Antioch. Right? Why, why is Antioch such a significant city? Part of Paul's missionary journeys. Part of Paul's missionary journeys, yeah. They're first, they're first called Christians at Antioch. Yeah, birthplace of Christianity. Yeah. Kind of. Yeah, first yeah. city of... They send off missionary schools there. And then also in our, uh, one of our classes, we talked about the two schools... There were two uh, kind of biblical uh, scholarly schools in the first uh, 300 years. Antioch was one of them. Anybody remember the other one? Also begins with an A. Alexandria, Alexandria yes, in Egypt. So the, those were the two kind of compete, competing schools. Remember, they had one kind of interpreted the Bible a little more literally. One could interpreted the Bible a little more figuratively and symbolically or... Um, so anyway, so he's so he's around. He's in Rome. He's in Antioch. 
He goes to Constantinople right at the peak Constantinople time, right when the, the Council of Nicaea is there. Uh, he actually gets um, uh, get studies under three of the big name guys uh, in the fourth century. And so, great opportunity. I mean, the guy gets around. Uh, and then in 382, he gets called back to go to Rome, and he becomes the secretary of the bishop at Rome, Damascus. The guy's name's Damascus. Damascus the first. Okay, this is 382 to 384. So he becomes kind of like the, the secretary, chief, chief of staff. I mean, he becomes a, you know, kind of theologian in residence with the bishop at Rome. And why is that significant? It's not super significant at this time, but it becomes really significant in the next couple centuries. It's heart of the Catholic Church. Heart of the Catholic Church? Yeah. Why? Because where? Because it's in Rome. Because it's in Rome? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Peter was said to have been there. Yeah. So... Um, Later, the Catholic Church, which we'll, we'll get to when we get, I think it's Leo, we'll get to him in a couple of weeks. Um, uh, I think it's Leo Art makes the, the case for the primacy of the, the bishop, Rick, the bishop of Rome having primacy over all of the other bishops all over the empire. And it's at that point you have this idea of papal authority and the popes. So the Catholic Church then goes back in history and says, well, if this goes all the way back to Peter, then Peter's the first pope, and then everybody who's the bishop at Rome from that point, what is a pope? So there's the line of papal succession. So Damascus, he spoke nothing about pope. No, The word pope's never used for him at all. But he's uh, pope. But he's a pope, according to the Catholic Church. Exactly, right. So uh, Jerome is this, is the assistant to the to the bishop in Rome. Um, Damascus dies, uh, but before he dies, Damascus commissions Jerome to write to to uh, do a translation of the scriptures into Latin. Now there were a couple of Latin translations at the time. But everybody basically regarded them as not being great. Either it was kind of too wooden or illiteral, it didn't flow really well, or there were just some, in terms of style, it didn't like, or there were some other things that maybe were kind of questionable. And so um, the Bishop of Rome uh, commissions Jerome to write a new translation of the Bible. And so he agrees to do it. It takes him 22 years, off and on. Uh, now here's what you need to know about the, um, about the Latin Bibles, the Latin translations of the Bible at that time, is that when it came to the New Testament, they translated from the New Testament language, which was what? Greek. Greek, right? What kind of Greek? Uh, Alexander. Alexander Greek. Yeah, Koine Greek. Greek. Yeah. Common, common <laughs> Greek, right? 
And then the Old Testament was is uh, originally written in what? Hebrew. Hebrew. Hebrew and and Greek. Koine Greek. No. Aramaic. Aramaic. Yeah. There's a couple of passages in Daniel and Ezra and uh, just a couple places where it's where it's written in Aramaic. What is Aramaic? Uh, the Aramaic would have been the language of Babylon and Assyria. So when you do see Aramaic in the Bible, it's connected to the later, yeah, yeah so it's connected to Daniel and those kinds of things. Yeah. So it would have been the language of, um, as a matter of fact, I think Daniel learns Aramaic when he's in the court. Um, the language of exile, basically. The language of the exile, right. Mm -hmm. yeah. And... Um, and then later in, in uh, Old Testament history to get to the New Testament era, there because um, because of um, the Assyrians conquering down into northern Israel, you would have a lot of people would have been bilingual. They would have understood Hebrew, and they would have also you know spoken Aramaic. Jesus says Aramaic words, right? So. Um, Eloi, Eloi, Lama Sabachthani, which is, you know, that's an Aramaic phrase. And they do translate that for you. They, they put it in Aramaic in the New Testament, they say, ah, and, which means, and then they write it into Greek. So, um, so he, he starts this work, uh, oh, so back to, the, back to the Latin, and I call them the Old Latin translations. So the Old Latin translations then, so you had a trans, they're, they're translating um, that's an L. <laughs> um, trans, yeah, with an, it looks like, this one looks like an exclamation point. Uh, trans! Trans, um, yeah. Oh, different time. Hear that word loud. Yeah. Uh, so these are translations. Okay. So the Old Latin <coughs> translations. So again, the receptor language is Latin. The um, original sources that they used were, for the New Testament, were what? Greek. Greek. For the Old Testament, what did they use? I've set that up to you be very suspicious about answering Hebrew. Greek. Greek. Yes. Right. So there was a translation uh, from the New Testament. This is the old Latin translations. Translation uh, from the New Testament Greek. It went from Greek to Latin. And the, and the translation for the Old Testament went from Greek to Latin. Okay, what's, what's the problem there? It's not the original. Yeah. So yeah, you've got the telephone game, mm -hmm. you know, or degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. You have a translation of a translation, not of Hebrew. So it goes from Hebrew to Greek, Greek to um, Greek to, to Latin. So uh, that was... Um, It wasn't really discovered that that was a problem until you have somebody who's commissioned by the Bishop of Rome to make a fresh translation out of Latin 
and who might be the only guy in the entire Western Roman Empire who knows Hebrew and is a Christian. So he goes and gathers up, goes and gathers Hebrew manuscripts, the Hebrew Bible, and he begins his work from Hebrew to Latin. Yes. Okay, so that Hebrew, those Hebrew manuscripts that he was looking at, how how close are they to original source text? I assume he's not using source text, or is, or is he? I have no idea. Yeah. Um, the when it comes to texts, the ancient Hebrews were really very particular at keeping the texts, right? Because they really. You know, rightly so. We we agree with this as well. They believe that those were the very words of God. So if they did a copying error or mistake or something, they were very rigorous in doing those things. Um, so uh, it's hard to say because the earliest Hebrew manuscripts that uh, that we have date to the. 1000 AD. Okay? So he's using something much earlier than that. He's using, right. Because, you know, of course, it, it, he, that is, yeah. you know, uh, 700 years, almost 700 years earlier. So he's using Hebrew manuscripts that we don't have in history. The earliest Hebrew manuscripts that we have, we had, I said had, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts that we had up until approximately 1947. When the Dead Sea Scrolls. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. Yes. So the Dead Sea Scrolls clearly date because they know from history that this was a group. This was, so how many of you know the story about the Dead Sea Scrolls? A little bit. Okay. Um, so let me back up a little bit. I'm still answering Josh's question. Um, Nobody heard the story about the Dead Sea Scrolls. I kind of know it, but I don't. I, I've heard bits and pieces. <coughs> there were pots that were broken. That's all. I right. Know. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Edge of my seat. Keep going. Yeah. So <laughs> there was a, there was a group of separatists. Did we talk about this in the first one about the Jewish background? There were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and then there was another group, the Essenes. Mm -hmm. You guys remember us talking about the Essenes? Those okay. are the ones that were in the desert. They were, in the, they were in the desert, so they decided they, they wanted to be, kind of purify themselves. They felt like, um, in some ways, what John the Baptist kind of preached against, the immorality of Jerusalem and, and stuff like that, these guys would have been like, that's exactly right. And so they moved as a community to a place called Qumran, which is, uh, if you guys have your Bible maps, you can see the Dead Sea. It's on the on the western northwestern side of the Dead Sea, and so they lived there in a little community. This would be called the the Essene community or Qumran, Q U Q Q U M A R N. Yeah, Qumran, Q Q U M R A N. You guys want to see that in your maps? Would nope. you like us to look it up? Well, I don't have a map in my Bible. No maps. That's a little tiny Bible. So yeah. me ride my bike with my little bike. <laughs> okay, so I'll tell you about the Essenes. The Essenes were then um, a, a little community. They wanted to be uh, more pure. 
uh, set apart. So they go away from Jerusalem. They establish their own little community, so their own commune, um, and they write their scriptures. So they were taking their text of the, the Hebrew scriptures, and they were making their own copies. And if there was, if they made a mistake, there's records of this, that if they made the mistake, this is when they would go, um, they would have to go and tear it up and then burn it and then have the ashes go very far away because they did not want to have any mistakes or anything in their Bible. So, uh, and this was rigorously, ver you know, letter by letter, I should go right to left, letter by letter checked. And um, then right after Rome is destroyed, or, or Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans, which happens in what year? Anybody? AD 70. Um, uh, Titus Vespasian, I think, is the one who destroys it. Uh, they end up making their way to chase out some of these other groups. And they go to destroy uh, Qumran, I think, the following year. Uh, I don't know if somebody tipped off the community at Qumran that they were coming, um, but they took all of their scrolls, rolled them up, put them into earthen vessels, and then hid them in the caves just above where their community was. Okay, And so the Romans did come up, ransacked the entire village, wiped them all out, and, um, and those scrolls sat there in the Judean desert along the shore of the Dead Sea until 1947, when a Bedouin shepherd, I think, was... Uh, was kind of chasing some of his goats or sheep and would throw the rocks or something to get them. And he threw a rock, it went through one of the cave holes in the cave, and he heard the breaking of pottery. So he crawls up there to go see what happens, and then he discovers a room full of these pots, all with uh, Hebrew scriptures on them. And up until that point, the earliest Hebrew scriptures that we had that we could date to was 1000 AD, and all of a sudden now it predates it by another 1100 years, uh, or, or about a thousand years. Before Christ, so you back before Christ. No, a thousand years from 1000 AD, so to the time of Christ. Oh, okay. The Essenes were a group in the time of Christ. So, the so in 1946, the earliest Hebrew manuscripts we had dated to 1000 AD, and then. In 147, we now had Hebrew manuscripts that dated uh, 2,000 years earlier, and they're almost verbatim. So the Essenes, the scrolls that we found in the Dead Sea, Dead sea Scrolls, yes. were written, and we have evidence of them being extremely accurate. They were written during the time of Christ. Yes. Yep. And so... It's safe to say that the the scrolls that Christ was were reading was reading when he goes into the temple were copied. This would would have been copied from that. So well, the, not necessarily. Just the the whatever scroll that Jesus would have been reading would have been destroyed. Right. But they were they were contemporaries. They were yes. made or one was being read while one was being created. <coughs> yes. Within a couple decades. Yes. It it dates right to the time of Jesus. And so, how does the Dead Sea Scrolls connect with Jerome? 
Well, I was answering Josh's question. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It does connect with Jerome, though, because in a very important way. Because uh, Jerome, um, the really then the earliest testimony that we have, the, the earliest manuscripts that we have of the Old Testament, um, well, uh, how do we say? Jerome's, um, well, what was the context of your question? Let me just I'm trying to figure out the, the translation. Translation. Yeah. Okay. What was the connection? So, um, at this time, there were Hebrew manuscripts in Jewish synagogues or Jewish uh, schools. And so, Jerome acquired some of these Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, and he did his translation based off of the Hebrew. So, in a way, it, the reason why it connects to Jerome is that we want to look at all of the pieces to find out what was the original text. And what you have in the um, medieval Jewish scriptures is nearly verbatim with what is in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there was every book in the Dead Sea Scrolls, I think, except for Ezra. I think that was the only scroll that was missing. They have all of the 39 Old Testament books. Uh, 38. 38 of the Old Testament books. Um, so, uh, so then you're looking at, okay, so you're looking at a thousand year, uh, from the Hebrew scriptures from a thousand years ago, they check, you know, with the accuracy fairly well with the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then you're looking at a translation, um, and Jerome is, Jerome is, uh, <clears throat> gathering these scriptures, let me back up a little and say this, up to this point, the, the Jewish, uh, up to this point, the old Latin translations had incorporated several other books that are not in our canon of the Bible. They incorporated a collection of other books, which we today call the, we want to guess what those are? No? Tonight's a bad night for asking questions. They ask like our testimony. Uh, it is intertestamental Jewish literature called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha. All these words are in my head. I just can't put them <laughs> on my tongue. Yeah. So when I say Apocrypha, you go, oh, that's the, those are Jewish, that's uh, intertestamental Jewish literature, and it was written in Greek. Or at least, if it wasn't written in Greek, it was translated in Greek. And so the old Latin versions that were circling around in the church in the first three centuries had all of these books in them. And I got a list of the, uh, the names of them here somewhere. But. Is that like where the menorah came from, that story and all that, or is that? Uh, I'm thinking, what's the Maccabean? Maccabean, okay. Yeah. The Maccabean. Let me see, I got a list here of the, um, I had a list here. Like the Book of Wisdom? Yeah, I could read through <coughs> some of the names. Some of it has history. Some of it does have the, the Maccabean history and stuff like that in there. Um, Maybe help? Yeah, you got them? Yeah. Read, read me the names. Tobit? Judith? Uh, yep. Yep. Editions of Esther. Wisdom of Solomon. Siraj. Baruch. Letter of Jeremiah. Song of Three. Susanna. Susanna. <laughs> yeah. Bell and the Dragon. 
<laughs> wow. Yeah. Maccabees. Yes. And, and some of that's devotional literature, some of it's actually history. So what we know about the, <coughs> the Jewish revolts against, uh, for instance, um, uh, Antiochus Epiphany. So remember, the Greek Empire breaks up into different groups, and they end up kind of fighting. There's an Egyptian group, and the Ptolemies, and the... I can, I'm, I'm going... You guys are glassing. You guys are eyes are glassing over. I'll just I'll just get to heaven. Um, so the old the old Latin translation, the old Latin translation of the Bible included all of those books. What happened to them? Um, they're still around. We still have those books. Are they part of Catholicism? Mm -hmm. The Catholic Church does recognize those. Yes. As part of the Bible. As part of the Bible. But Jerome took them out. Jerome was arguing to take them out. So this is where it gets, where it connects with Jerome and Augustine. So I'll just kind of cut to the chase, chase here. Jerome translates the Bible, and he doesn't include those. He doesn't want to include those. He goes, well, one, most of them are not written in Hebrew. And two, when I go to, the, when I go to get my Hebrew sources... The Jews say, these are our books, and those aren't in it. <laughs> so, so he's like, so I'm not translating that, and I'm not going to include it. He didn't want to include it into the Old Testament. Okay? Um, and here I have a printout. I have a printout of uh, a dozen or so letters back and forth from Jerome to front back. From back and forth from Jerome to Augustine. They are kind of like emails, except they're emails that sometimes don't get sent. <laughs> well, because one of them like was destroyed. Like he begins one of these letters. I've sent you two letters already, and I've heard no reply. <laughs> this is a pretty <laughs> exclamation point! Exclamation point! <laughs> All yeah. capital letters. Yeah. Capital. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> mad, mad face emoji. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so, so let me let me summarize. Let me summarize here. So he, Jerome begins the translations of all of these things, and uh, of the Old Testament scriptures, and he he's writing and he's arguing for why we should not have these other books as apocryphal. Um, these, as a matter of fact, I think he he even uses. I think he coins the term apocrypha, which means um, hidden. So it means these shouldn't be public books. They might be okay for Christians to have. They might be okay for Christians to read. But in terms of the church's public ministry, these should be re remain hidden. Because I don't believe that these are part of the Old Testament scripture. Okay? Now to that, Augustine objects. Obje uh, Augustine objects to... Um, to Jerome's wanting to not include those in. And there's a couple of things that happen. They debate about this in a couple of things. So let me just read to you a section here from uh, this book called The King James Only Controversy, which is a great book if you're interested in the topic of textual criticism. How many know what textual criticism is? Well, how do we know which texts of the Bible, what manuscripts? Like we have all these different manuscripts, and this one has a different spelling of a word and but then this one does but it's the exact same passage exact same word how do we know which <coughs> which one was the real one 
You know, if there's passages like um, when Jesus is going with the disciples and they're like, why are we able to cast out demons? And uh, Jesus says, and these, these are only uh, casted out by, um, by prayer. And then what is, there's another, some translations that say, prayer and fasting. fasting. Mm-hmm. Yes, prayer and fasting. And so sometimes you'll read along in your Bible and you'll see a footnote and it'll go, and some manuscripts have, and fasting. Or if you're reading along, and I can't remember the reference now too, and you're reading your verses, if you're paying attention to the numbers, and you're like, it goes from you know, verse 32, verse 33, verse 35. Wait, what happened to verse 34? And you might see a little note down there, and it says some, some manuscripts don't include, don't have those. So the, te- the, the, uh, the field of textual criticism is the how do we determine which of these manuscripts that we have that have different readings, how do we know which one was the original one? And which ones then maybe weren't included because maybe it was later, you know, maybe it was a, they're copying something and somebody wrote something in the, in the margin. And then when the copyist, because they didn't have printers and copying machines then, they would have somebody sitting down in the room and just making their own copy, or there would be a reader who would read it and then copy them down. So how do you how do you know which one? So textual criticism is the field of how do we know what manuscripts are the original manuscripts. This is dealing in particular with the King James only Bibles, but this is actually a great introduction to textual criticism. So let me read to you a section here, um, a a little bit here, that lays out the the debate between Jerome and and Augustine. So in the early uh, 5th century, um, Jerome provides this new translation in Latin, um, and when the translation reached North Africa, it caused a stir in the churches overseen by Augustine. One aspect of his work that caused consternation among the people was that he did not use the traditional translation in the book of Jonah regarding the gourd. How many of you grew up on the King James? You know, and so the Jonah, the plant that grows and, you know, provides shade for Jonah at the end of the book. Um, The traditional Latin had a gourd. I, I, I don't like the traditional Latin because I don't like gourds, so I don't like pumpkins. So um, I like the earlier reading, or the other reading. The Hebrew is difficult here, and Jerome decided not to follow the Septuagint. Oh, I should have said that. Septuagint, does that name sound familiar? Mm-hmm. It's in the footnotes? Oh, my Bible all the time. Yeah, okay. Um, this, the translation of the Old Testament that the Latin, the Old Latin was using was the Greek translation, and sometimes it has LXX. Have you seen that in commentaries? No? I keep picking this one up. Um, Septuagint. Uh, it comes from the Latin word for 70, septa. Septuagint, and the, the Latin Roman numerals is 50, 10, 10, 70. So um, that was the Greek translation of the, of the Hebrew Bible. Okay? So when the, uh, when the original Latin translations were translating the Bible into Latin, for the Old Testament, they weren't using Hebrew, they were using the Greek. 
And the name of that Greek one is the Septuagint. Okay? Um, so, uh, the Hebrew is difficult here, and Jerome decided not to follow the Septuagint's identification of the plant as a gourd, but instead followed the Palestinian Jewish understanding and identified it as a castor oil plant. Um, in any case, there was a near riot when this passage was read in Carthage. <laughs> Who, I mean, what, imagine what kind of uh, the church world was like back then when there was a riot in the church because somebody read from a, you know, a translation and it wasn't. Nowadays, we have the, the luxury of lots of different translations, right? Last night at home group, we were reading a passage in Romans, and, and as we were going around reading, there were three different. There was the NIV, there was the ESV, and the LSB, right? How many translations do you have at home? One, the ESV. <laughs> Pepe? Special version. Like four or five? Four or five? What's the one you typically use? Uh, NIV. NIV, okay. And King James in Spanish. And King, the, the Spanish version of the King James, yeah. Okay. The Reina? Reina Valera. Valera, yeah. Um, you got. We've got a handful. ESV. We, we, we do too. We have NIV. Yeah. I think we have a King, King James somewhere. NASB. Maybe. NASB. When I became a Christian, it was the NIV. Yeah. And so when you, how many of you have had this experience when you switch to a different translation and you're reading along with a very familiar passage and you go, whoa, uh, you know, I had that kind of memorized in my head as going one way and that goes in a, in a very unique and a different direction, right? Well, that's what's happening in this church. They're so used to, all of them have grown up and reading the one translation that now all of a sudden this translation is saying something that's completely different. <laughs> I think it's just interesting that there it's that shouldn't be castor oil plant. That should be a gourd. But that's what they were fighting about. Um, so there was a near riot when this uh, broke out. So Augustine objected to it, and Jim uh, James White here records for us one of the letters here when he says this. My only reason for objecting to the public reading of your translation from the Hebrew in our churches was lest bringing forward anything which was, as it were, new and opposed to the authority of the Septuagint version. We should trouble by serious cause of offense the flocks of Christ. Okay, let me say that again. He goes, my main objection to reading your translation um, was that you were bringing something new as opposed to the authority of the, of the Septuagint, which would cause the, the Christians in our churches to be, you know, with, with consternation, whose ears and hearts have become accustomed to listening to that version to which the seal of approbation was given by the apostles themselves. So in other words, Augustine was objecting to Jerome because he's like, no offense, I mean, Augustine didn't know Hebrew. No offense, but, I mean, and I'm sure you're a good translator of the Old Testament, of Hebrew. 
But we object really to your translation because it's changing from what we're used to, what everybody was accustomed to. He goes on to argue, um, uh, well, and Jerome's argument back was, these are the scriptures that were originally written. They were originally written in Hebrew. Here you're doing a, you know, a, another degree of separation to go from Hebrew to Greek and then from Greek to Latin when it was, I, in his opinion, it's best to go all the way back to the Hebrew. And so he was arguing for that, not only for, uh, not only for which books to include, but how the translation should read. Gord or castor oil plant. And um, so Jerome was arguing back, no, we should, we should actually be operating from the original manuscripts, from the Hebrew, not from a copy of a copy. So, so Augustine appeals to the apostles. He, almost like yes. the, the apostolic authority is granted to the Septuagint, yeah. not the original text. Right. Is there validity to that? Well, there is. That's a great question because what Augustine goes to do is he goes to New Testament passages that quote an Old Testament passage. And they quote the Septuagint. And it quotes from the Septuagint. Mm -hmm. Because did the apostles, the apostles knew Greek. Did they knew, know Hebrew and Aramaic? They would have known Hebrew and, Ar and Aramaic as well. But yeah. what, is it safe to say that the apostles were, because Greek would have been like everyday language for them. Correct, because of uh, Alexander and the Hellenism. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So if you quote a movie, do you quote it in Spanish <coughs> or English? Uh, I don't quote movies. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. This is a good point, though. But it seems like if you're going to quote something, you quote it in your native tongue. Yeah. Not, not what it has been translated from. If that's a secondary yeah. tongue. Well, it'd be kind of like if we were, you know, talking today and, you know, we were to quote somebody, um, say you're, you're going to somebody and you're going to, uh, I don't know, think of a familiar passage. That's what Jesus said in John 3.16. <laughs> <laughs> Well oh, that's a good. That's too controversial. <laughs> we gotta not do that. Uh, we could do something that Jesus said. Okay, I, here's what we could do. Uh, um, okay, how about this? Um, the Lord's Prayer. Uh, say the Lord's Prayer. Recite it, as I know you got it memorized. Who aren't heaven? Wait, what? Who aren't? Who are who, in heaven? Who, who is in heaven? Who is in heaven? Right. So it depends on what translation. Why do you say, "Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name." Because that's how you learned it. But that's a translation. That's from the King James Version, right? Yeah. I was going to say that, though. I think that's interesting. Those very famous ones like that and the Ten Commandments still have the these and thous and shouts and arts. And yes. That's how everyone yeah. does it. Yeah, I think Psalm 23, too, with the, uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Mm -hmm. He maketh me lie down in green pastures, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so when we're talking today and you're talking with somebody and you want to from your own memory, share a scripture verse, which one do you share? Probably the one you read. Probably the most common one. Right? Mm -hmm. So what, what does that say when the apostles are quoting from the Septuagint? 
could be dependent on the audience. Maybe it's to whom they're writing. So when, when John is quoting something that Jesus said, did Jesus say it in Greek? John wrote it in Greek. Jesus maybe has said it in Aramaic. As a matter of fact, sometimes he says, and he says in Aramaic, and then he goes, which in Greek means, right? So John's even doing translation. Jesus maybe said it in Aramaic. John's writing it in Greek. And so he may have just even been quoting from, you know, he just may have been quoting from the Greek version because he was writing it in Greek. So that's a great question, Paul, is Augustine's argument was, hey, if the Septuagint was good enough for the apostles to quote, then it must share in its inspiration. He even was going so far as to suggest that the translators, the ones, the, the 70, who did the translation from Hebrew into Greek originally hundreds of years before the New Testament, he even goes so far as to say under God's providence that those translators were being inspired and at least God could use that translation. That's what Augustine was arguing. So that's a good question. Between the two, are we talking about are we talking about scripture being changed, or are we talking about just word order and 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 you know like a like the, the way we think of the King James and NIV being sounding different because they're just they were written at different times and yeah, it, what kind of a change are we talking about between these? Well, it's it's hard to tell because um, you mean so in other words the old Latin how. How different was it from the from the Hebrew? Yeah. Right? So it's hard to tell later in history because we didn't because all of the manuscripts from the, the Hebrew were gone. So in a way, the Septuagint is a, and, and Jerome's translation, in a way, the Septuagint is a very, very important document because that's really the earliest testimony we have to the Old Testament. It, it predates even the Essenes. Even though it's in Greek, it predates the Essenes. So, um, so in a way, it's like you're kind of uh, reverse engineering back. And so we have a later manuscript, and we would assume that that hasn't changed, but then we look at what the Septuagint has, but we don't have the Hebrew that they used. We only have a later version, but we can assume that it's the same, um, but in a way, it's in a positive way. It, it's it's a strong testimony that we actually have for the terms of the Old Testament before the New Test before the Christian era that we have the 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 Old Testament in two languages that we can cross reference and compare. Most of it's the same. Some of it we're talking just word changes and verse numbering. Yeah, well, the verse numbering yeah, is well, sometimes. That's what I don't care about, but. Yeah. Some of the Old Testament, if you're reading along like in a commentary or something, it will say, it'll give like a psalm reference, and then in parentheses it will say E-T, and then have a different reference. That's because the numbering um, from a Hebrew to the Greek or, you know, the English translation numbering would be different. But. So yeah, so Jerome is saying, hey, we should only be using the Hebrew scriptures as the scripture. And Augustine goes, well, hold on a second here. If the, if the inspired scriptures 
of the New Testament have the apostles quoting the Septuagint, then the Septuagint should be equally inspired. And then he's adding that extra argument. And if you're changing from what the Septuagint has, you're changing from what's familiar to the congregation. So my main objection is not um, with, with uh, your thing. Although, let me read to you a, a chapter from uh, the City of God. This is very... <laughs> so this is not in one of his letters back and forth. Um, but there's a chapter in uh, book uh, 18, chapter 43, and the title is Of the Authority of the Septuagint Translation. He actually argues in here for the authority of the Septuagint. Uh, which, with the exception of the Hebrew original, is to be preferred, preferred to all other versions. Uh, all other versions being, what? Jerome's. Jerome's, yes. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't say, which is to be preferred to Jerome's. Um, but, uh, so he says here, um, However, the church has received the Septuagint as if it were the only translation. The Greek-speaking Christian peoples use it, and most of them do not even know there is any other. From this Septuagint, a translation into Latin uh, has also been made into which the Latin-speaking churches adhere. Moreover, in our time has come the presbyter Jerome, a most learned man and a scholar of all three languages, and he has translated these same scriptures into Latin, not from the Greek, but from the Hebrew. Now the Jews acknowledge the accuracy of the fruit of his literary endeavors. Oh, that, that's an important thing too, is that the Jews go, he, that's really well done. You know, who, you know, he did a good job uh, in translating it from the Hebrew. Um, Nevertheless, it is the judgment of the churches of Christ that no one person should be preferred to the authority of so large a body of men chosen for so great a work um, by Eliezer, who was then the high priest. That He's speaking of Eliezer the high priest who commissioned these 70 Jewish scholars to produce that. For even if it were not so clearly beyond doubt that the one divine spirit was present in them, and even if the 70 scholars had compared the words of their own translations with one another, as men usually do, so that what pleased them all should stand, even then it should not be proper to rely on any translator above them. But since so clear a sign of divinity has appeared in their work, it is evident that any other accurate translator of the scriptures from the Hebrew into any other language whatsoever must agree with the Septuagint. Or if it seems not to agree with it, he, we must believe that the highest expression of prophetic meaning lies in the Septuagint. For the same spirit that was in the prophets when they spoke was present also in the 70 men when they translated them. And the Spirit could, um, could have said something else also with divine authority as if the prophet had said both those things because it is the same Spirit who said both. That last part seems dangerous. Mm-hmm. In what way? Uh, this, basically, he's saying that the, the Holy Spirit could have spoken to the translators who wrote the Septuagint and add words to the original prophets. Yeah, so even if they said, yeah, um, because it was the same spirit who said both, they could have uh, said the same thing in a different way so that even the words were not the same, the same meaning would still shine forth 
upon those who rightly understood them. It just seems, seems dangerous. Because then it comes down to the translator's understanding, their interpretation. So they're basically, he's arguing that the divine, there was divine inspiration in the Septuagint. So as in, um, uh, what is it, in Second Peter chapter 1, somebody want to look that passage up? Second <coughs> Peter 1, when Peter talks about the... Um, Second Peter 1. I think it's Second Peter 1 at the end of the chapter there. Um, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay? And then in Paul, in um, 2 Timothy 3.16, says that all scripture is breathed out by God. It is um, profitable um, for correcting and training and establishing righteousness. Right. I forget some of those words there. Were you quoting it? Yeah. yeah? Could you say it for us? All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for correction. Yeah. And for training in righteousness. And training, yeah. That the... That the... That the man of God may be equipped... Good job. For every... For every good work. There you go. Good job. <laughs> Woo! <clears throat> um... So yes, Augustine is basically saying what, what Peter is saying here of the scripture, that no prophecy of scripture comes from one's own interpretation. Uh, no prophecy, prophecy was produced by the will of men, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Augustine is, by extension of his argument here, is saying, and that applies even to the translators. What do you guys think about that? No. Wrong. <laughs> Wrong. Who is he? Can you elaborate on that? It was a little vague. He was vague, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, as much as I love Augustine, uh, it was inspired when it was written by each person. So the Torah by Moses, you know, um, the Tanakh, whatever, and the other, mm -hmm. all inspired. Each person wrote those different. You know, David wrote the Psalms. It wasn't, well, David wrote this psalm, and well, I'm going to add this word to it. Yeah. Or take away this word. You know, like, you either translate it or you don't. Like, there is no, it, the, the plant thing is hilarious to me. Like, what difference does it make what kind of plant it is? You know? <laughs> the story of Jonah is the point of the story, yeah. not the point. I mean, the plant has part, but, like. But if all scripture is breathed out, like in every word, like jot and tittle. You know, but, but in it, I'll go, I'll, this guy's point of view, like you really lose, there's interpretation when you're translated. When I'm talking English and Spanish, I'm translating, I have to interpret, I have to put a little bit of my own words. Yeah. Because if you translate it literally, it makes no sense. So I do see the point of these people have to be somehow inspired by the Holy Spirit to do this translation because what they are saying could be interpreted differently. I can see that. Yeah. And, and what I, is? Sorry, go ahead, Paul. I was just gonna. I, I can see Augustine's point that if if we if we believe that the apostles' writings is also breathed out by God, and they quoted the Septuagint, 
Mm-hmm. That's a valid argument. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. See, I think for me, when I come to this point, I go, I heard several sermons in my lifetime from people who said, well, I think Aaron and I talk, the kingdom of God is a feeling. Because over here in this version, because I didn't know enough, maybe at the time, or I knew enough, but, you know, it struck me, right? Like, wait a minute. You're going here to, like, what, 15 times it says the kingdom of God is X, and then this one time in this obscure little thing that somebody says, it means this. So we're going to go here and we're going to turn it to that. That's where I go, where I'm like, whoa, no, you're not changing scripture. Like, go to the Hebrew. That's my, you know, but, so... That's where my hesitation is. Yeah. The abuse of that. Um, because we have to rely on you and the people who have, who know Hebrew, who know Greek, who know maybe Aramaic. We have to rely on that. And I think I put my trust in some of that before, right? Where I didn't question certain people for saying stuff like that. So yes, that's where my hesitation comes in. Mm-hmm. I'm not necessarily disagreeing with Augustine that that wasn't inspired, but... The brakes get pumped real hard when I hear, whoa. Mm. Yeah. So your argument is more for Jerome's position. Yes. Go back as to the, the closest to the original as possible. Absolutely. And that's why I read the ESV. Now, I mean, from my small little knowledge of the corner of the world, it's the most accurate. Not accurate, but it's the most accurate. The most literal most translation. Yeah. And you can see that in some of the passages, but. So that's where, where I come from. I don't. It's it's dangerous. It's yeah. like Paul said. It is dangerous. But I don't disagree with Augustine saying, "Well, we have this," and no. you know. Well, so then to to that, and then based mm-hmm. off of what uh, Pepe was saying earlier, which, which is which is true, mm-hmm. every translation is an interpretation because you're having to make decisions as you're going from original language to the receptor language, right. you, you have to go, well, uh, I have to interpret a little bit so that I could get this, convey this thing across. I wish Dave Votberg was here to tell us between how he's translating his, because he's doing it into um, Thai. Yeah, he translates a lot of works into Thai. Right, so and, where, where, yeah. how does he come up with some of that stuff? I mean, that's just an interesting yeah. you know, side note. Like, yeah. But it, in most cases, if it's, you know, like from a movie, you know, you, you know <laughs> yeah. or something like that, but you're going like, this is from the word of God to a translation. So, uh, so what does that say about our approach to English translations or Spanish translations? Any, any other translation? What should our approach be to translations? Well, I would, my approach, if I were to go, I would start with the Hebrew because we know that it, that's been passed along for generation to generation I mean, since the beginning of time, obviously. And then go to the Greek and compare the two, and then maybe even go to the Latin version that, you know, Jerome, like compare to the three, and you gotta come up with kind of a consensus. But, I mean, I, that's the way I would handle it, but. Maybe I should just learn how to read Hebrew and Greek. <laughs> but I mean, yeah. So, to to something you said, uh, the ESV is an essentially literal translation that seeks as far as possible to reproduce the precise 
wording of the original text and the personal style of each Bible writer. Essentially literal translation. So if we didn't have, well, we've had the Dead Sea Scrolls for a long time, are scholars looking at interpretations? The difference between the Dead Sea Scrolls and what we have in our Bible today? Uh, yeah, there, there are scholars who work on that, are, um, you know, and they're, they're always looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls and copying them and, you know... Uh, <coughs> Is your question like... Well, could the Bible that we're reading be an error? Oh. Well, I mean, immediately the answer is no. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, it depends on what you mean by error. Like, is there some... Could there be mistakes in translating? Well, or copying? Words, some languages I'm sure wouldn't have an equal word to another language. Yep. Yep. Lots of words like that. So then when it comes to like, well then what's the final authority? Because there would be, whether it's a gourd or a castor oil plant, you're sitting here going, that's that's a difference. Um, but what did God do? You mean in the story? Yeah. What does he do? He provides the plant. Does it change the meaning of the story? Exactly. No. Right. Yeah. Um, but is there is are there other places where a translation from the Hebrew to Greek Old Testament that it does change the meaning, or at least I don't know of any. I can think. I can think of a couple, but there's people that write books about differences between the mm -hmm. what do they call that? Um, people that write contradictions. You know, mm -hmm. well, John says this and Luke says that, and yeah. I've seen a lot of that. But there's also, you know, and I think that's the dangerous part of it is not knowing you know, the Bible, like not knowing, um, just relying on what you don't, if you don't dive into it every day, a little bit, you don't, when somebody says, oh, there's a contradiction, you're automatically like, well, I can't, I just can't trust this version. <laughs> but you haven't read the whole thing, you know. Um, I think I've read it two or three times now. And each time it gets more woven together. Like, I can see more of it coming together. Yeah. You know, so... But if you don't take the time and someone says, well, this is a contradiction when it's really not, you know... I'll sit there. <laughs> <laughs> I needed a look up... I'm looking up something here. Try to find a quote. I think I like the nostalgia of the Hebrew. I don't know. Maybe that's why we kind of lean toward it or whatever. But but also the Greek because when you you know like 
opening thing of John is the same thing as the opening of Genesis. Like mm. he's pointing you back to that with the Greek. Yeah. So, you know, it's just super. It's pretty cool. But. Yeah. Um, James James White brings up that story. So there's two things we could talk about. One is um, um, the inspiration of translations. Are, are translations breathed out by God? The, the reason why James White brings that, that uh, story up uh, in regards to the King James only translators is be, or King James only advocates, and these are people who say that uh, they shouldn't say, they're not just saying we should only use the King James. Um, or they're, they're certainly not saying, well, we prefer the King James because, you know, it's been around longer and stuff like that. They actually are going so far as to argue that the King James itself is breathed out by God. And you should not use another translation because any other translation is exactly that, a translation. When, um, when the King James itself has been preserved by God. That, so they're, they're going to and making that argument, which is really, a, 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 in some ways, an extension of Augustine's argument. Mm -hmm. So you're saying like the, the NIV is translated from the King James? Uh, it, it, you mean am I saying that? Or? Yeah. No, they, the NIV uh, used, they went back to the Hebrew and the Greek to translate from that, and they're translating it into... 20th century at the time, 20th century English. Um, so nobody today in 20th century America uses those things like thee and thou and thy. So, um, so they took those out and they used the words that are used today. Is that what Jefferson cut off his <laughs> Jefferson just cut off yeah. all those days. <laughs> So, no, the, the NIV used Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic. The, the team of people who are the translators for that actually went to those languages and used, used those languages to translate into English. Um, what the King James only people are arguing, partly, there's, there's other parts to the, their argument too, but they're arguing you shouldn't go away from the King James because it itself is the breathed out, they're basically arguing that this has the same authority as the original manuscripts that Paul or Peter or John wrote. Well, if it was translated from the original language and another version was translated from the, the original language, how could they say that theirs is the only one that's yeah. really dope? Well, and then that version would have been translated long ago, like before the Dead Sea Scrolls even, which is the earliest manuscripts we have the Hebrew, right? And yeah, you're talking the, the most accurate. The Septuagint. Mm -hmm. You're talking the Septuagint predates the, the. Um, well, I'm saying that the, KJ, the, the King, King James, James translation of the Bible wouldn't have used the Dead Sea Scrolls, which right. are like the most accurate Hebrew translations. That's that a great point. Right That's so a great point. So how can you even prove that their translation of the Old Testament then is the most accurate? If because the KJV I mean, came from something not the original would it have come from the latin vulgate the they used the latin vulgate they actually uh, they did use um 
They used the best of manuscripts available to them at the time, which I think was less than 12. Anybody have an idea how many manuscripts, Greek manu just Greek manuscripts we have today? It's like 5,800 manus Greek manuscripts that we've discovered through archaeology and stuff. But that doesn't matter because God guided and ordained and breathed out the King James one. That's what their argument here. That's and that comes from Augustine, right? Doesn't it? That, that's mm -hmm. basically what Augustine was arguing. You, I, you might have a superior translation than that. In a way, he kind of he kind of jabs at Jerome. He's like the one translator. He's like, but these seventy, you know, who are you to say that one guy, the one translator, is better than the seventy? How does he say it here? You know, for even if it's not so clearly beyond doubt that one divine spirit was present in them. And even if 70 scholars have compared their words to one another. Um, so, so again, looking at this, looking at it from both sides, the, the Passion Translation keeps popping up in my oh head. Oh, boy. Yeah. And so, one man, right? Uh, um, you're not ghostwriting. Um, automatic writing? Thank you. Automatic yeah. writing. And... You know, I don't know what he would claim about it, but it's considered, at least to some people, it's considered a translation. And so one dude, inspired. Yeah. So Jerome, one dude, I don't know if he claims to be inspired, but he's copying from. Augustine saying, yeah, but I've got 70 people here. Now he's claiming those 70 are inspired. Yeah. And so it's like you're taking some argument, some parts of this argument, some parts of this argument, and, I, and I'm applying it to the, the Passion Translation. It's a slippery slope to say, one dude, but it's also a slippery slope to say, inspired. Yeah. Well, I mean, what gives them the authority? Like, how do they know that this one was inspired, and how can they say that this one wasn't? It, you know, what's the argument for that, that this was inspired? The but King that James, one can't be. The King, you're talking the King Any James of the only, only people? The King James only, or Augustine saying that their version is inspired? Yeah. Those seven? How, Most do, how do you know and what argument do you have? And then that Jerome's version couldn't have been inspired in the same way that the Septuagint Yeah, was. great point. Like, yeah, if, they, if, if that was inspired, why couldn't have Jerome's been inspired? You know, Strom, as far as I know, he didn't make that argument. He's like, well, you should expect, ex you know, receive mine because it's inspired. <laughs> you know, um, yeah, that's a good, um, that's a good question. But I think Augustine is basically arguing, you're messing with tradition. <laughs> you're just messing with tradition. What what the what the ears of the people are accustomed to. That's why the subjects should be authoritative. Like, that sounds wrong right out of the gate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but tradition. Some traditions are just wrong. Yeah. Tradition for tradition's sake. Yeah. 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 Well, let me add to that then too here, and this will kind of part two of our discussion. Um, there uh, were a couple of things in that, those apocryphal writings that suggest that you could do prayers for the dead and 
Um, and I, again, I don't remember exactly. I'd have to look this up. But I believe that there are two traditions that develop in the Catholic Church that come from the Apocrypha. Prayers for the dead and... Give me a second. Getting older. <clears throat> Prayers for the dead and purgatory. Yeah. But were those traditions that slowly developed over time or are those traditions that developed when somebody said, hey, here's a good chance to make money? Yeah. Are these cathedrals are not built. Yeah. Well, in that, you're right. So there's, there's the, the motivations for how the, that thing develops. But then, as is always the case, you then try to find scriptural justification for it, right? So then if you go, well, let's go back to the scripture and find scriptural justification for praying for the dead and for purgatory. Now, it matters what is in the Bible and what isn't. So if Judith and Tobit and stuff like that, or whatever verses of the, the, um, the Apocrypha that would suggest something like an abode for the dead and an afterlife, like a purgatory type thing, then there you go. Now you have your justification. But if the, if the church does not accept those books as authoritative, then you've now lost at least your scriptural justification for it. You have to find it somewhere else. Yeah, that's a good it's a good point. Like those things are developing, you know, later in church history, but are they using can you use Augustine's argument and use the fact that that some of those apocryphal books are in there that teach some of those things? So, I'll find those references and I'll I'll send them to you, but. So there's two there's two parts. One is, well, how how what translation should be authoritative? Is any translation authoritative? Is any translation the inspired word of God? Well, we want to say, yeah, but in what way? It, it seems as though... And the other half of that is, which gets included in the canon of Scripture. So, yeah, those are two points. It, it seems as though we have... We have the blessing of time and discovery. Meaning that the more time that goes by, the more uh, the more discoveries, the more scriptures, the further back we can go, the more we can compare. And the greater level of confidence we have when you have more copies and more little fragments to say this is how this was written. In 99% of these, yes, we have these one or two, but we keep finding more and more and more that say it this way. It gives us confidence to dismiss any minor discrepancies here and there. So it seems like time time is, is beneficial. Not, not saying that we necessarily have a more accurate translation, but we have we can have greater confidence in the original and our ability to understand mm -hmm. the original. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That in some of the debates that happen with, like, say, like Bart Ehrman, you guys have heard Bart Ehrman, right? He's a, uh, an agnostic, with former Christian, but, you know, New Testament scholar. And he believes that the there's 
there's as many errors in the New Testament as there are words. And by errors, he means variant readings. Right. You know, it, because, so there's a little bit of a word game that he's playing there too because he's counting every variation from one manuscript to another. Um, the more manuscripts you find, the more, I mean, Yeah, right. But if, but if the percentages, if we're going on a percentage game here, the more you find, it should bolster your percentage. Your, your batting average should go up. But is he counting an error that occurs in the same verse in four different, yeah, as four errors? Daniel Wallace, in one of his arguments in his debates back with, with Bart Ehrman, goes, this is actually pointing to the, the confidence we can have in the scriptures because we have the, the we have uh, almost 6,000 manuscripts now that uh, are so vastly similar to one another. I mean, you're, when, you, when you accumulate such uh, a wealth of manuscripts and you have a variation between is it you or our? You know, does the Greek word could be you or our? You know, John says, you know, and you, you will make my joy complete or, or our joy complete or your joy complete. Well, which one is it? You know, translators will put a little footnote in there and say some Greek manuscripts say this. We picked this one, but there's another option. Doesn't really change it. This guy's arguing we have so many of them that we know the accuracy of 99.999% of all of the rest. So it is really um, an embarrassment of riches. There is no manuscript in the ancient world that has as much... Testament, uh, uh, documentary support to it as the as the New Testament, and, and it's not even close. It's not even close. Uh, no, is no, it, like Plato's it, writings are yeah, uh, yeah. so almost is it yeah. almost, almost contemporary almost. compared to the actual yeah. documents we have for. Yeah, if you think of some of the big big philosophers, the 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 number of manuscripts that we have are in the dozens. Yeah. Uh, like Cicero, or you know, let's just take Cicero for example, which would be kind of similar. Like, there's like six manuscripts of Cicero, and they date to hundreds of years, the earliest hundreds of years from his lifetime. Mm. But nobody questions whether Cicero no, those said are, those things. Those are one hundred percent accurate, right? We have, <laughs> we have, and this is kind of getting us a little off the field, but from where we are, but we have thousands of manuscripts. Some of them dating to within decades, a half a century from that time, with overwhelming agreement with one another. Yeah, it's pretty. So let's, let me read some things about the inclusion. Should, so should Christians, well, then why don't we, why is it that we don't have Judith and Tobit and Maccabees and, uh, the, and Bell the Dragon Bell the Dragon. Why do we like have five? It sounds <laughs> awesome. Like, I'm sure. How many kids are like Bell the Dragon? Bell the Dragon. That sounds like a kid's book. Let's put that, that in there. Before Islam and talk about <laughs> Bell the Dragon. <laughs> um, uh, why are those not in there? Why are those in there? Well, um, actually, uh, Jerome ended up uh, choosing to, from. A long story, but he decided that he would end up translating into Latin the apocryphal books. But he put them in the back, kind of like an appendix. 
like an appendix. So um, in church councils immediately following that time, several church councils voted to include them. So the, the Catholic Church in the West had included these all the way up through until the, the Reformation era. Um, in the Reformation era, the motto, which is following on humanism, and I don't mean secular humanism like today, we're talking like humanism was, um, was a movement to going back to the sources. Ad fontes, you guys heard that, seen this phrase before? Ad fontes means back to, to the fount, or you know, back to the source, back to the sources. So there was, in the Renaissance period, there was a resurgence of uh, scholarship. We need to go read the classics. We need to go read the Greeks. We need to do what Jerome did. We need to read, learn another language. We're not just going to learn Latin or whatever. We're, we're later versions of Latin. We're going to learn Greek. And so you had scholars that were doing that, and that was very influential to the Reformation, which is we'll get to when we get to that part there, but... Um, um, so let me just read a couple of things here. Um, uh, this is from this book called Historical Theology. Uh, Greg Allison. Uh, Jerome's ancient distinction between canonical and apocryphal writings was revived. So in the late Middle Ages, right before the Reformation, um, in this... Uh, humanistic renaissance movement going back to the sources they go you know what, what Jerome had Jerome was on to something here um, the translator of the Vulgate had argued that the Apocrypha could be read for the quote for the edification of the people uh, but could not be used quote to give authority to doctrines of the church that's what uh, uh, Jerome said in the preface to one of his to one of the, the I think Proverbs the church could appeal to the canonical scripture alone to establish its doctrine. Augustine had blurred this distinction, and thus the church, following his influence, had established certain beliefs and practices on the authority of apocryphal writings. And so, uh, oh, here's the reference, 2 Maccabees chapter 12. This would be purgatory and praying for the dead. The question arose... Should the church continue to base its belief and practices on the Apocrypha, or should canonical scripture alone be used to, uh, to establish them? The Reformation follows that, and so uh, a lot of the Reformers, um, and I'm just reading the London Baptist Confession of Faith, but several other confessions actually include this in there. This is in chapter 1, paragraph 3, um, where it the London Baptist editors here. Basically, it's the Westminster Confession of Faith at this point. It says, The books commonly called Apocrypha, not being of divine inspiration, are no part of the canon or rule of Scripture, and therefore are of no authority to the Church of God, nor to be any otherwise approved or made use of than other human writings. So that paragraph right there is almost exactly what Jerome says in one of his preferences. Can you read it? Yes. Um, but you need to read it as any other book. You must not read it as inspired scripture. Because Jerome's argument was 
the one the truly inspired scripture for the he, for the Hebrew Bible, the words of God in the Old Testament uh, are recorded for us in the Hebrew uh, in the Hebrew language. The translation of it is that exactly that. It's a translation. A translation is not breathed out and inspired by God. Thoughts? Any other closing questions? I mean, I guess you, the, the, my question would be like the message Bible. That is that inspired by the Lord, or is that just a watered down version of the truth? You know, like make it feel good. You know, I think that's where I you know, see the the abuse of that. You know, translation. Yeah. You know, where Jerome was going. I'm sure Jerome seems like he was, from the little I know, was very almost nerdy. You know, super smart. Accurate, like he had no, like it just probably annoyed people maybe a little. I mean, just, <laughs> he, he, just kind of the background, like his movements and the way where he went and how he ended up in places. Um, but yeah, 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 so yeah, Augustine makes a valid point, but at the same time, we get to where we're at today, and we have the message. The Amplified Bible, the, you know, people saying, well, the Old Testament isn't valid or, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. So, I don't know, that's a quick thought. Any of you have Catholic family members that have a Bible and mm -hmm. that have the Apocrypha in it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now you have a better, hopefully you have a better understanding of, like, maybe... How did it get there? Yeah. Where, where did that come from? Thanks, Augustine. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't just him. There were I a lot know. of others that, that went along with that, too. It sounds like the question is, isn't so much how did it get there, but how did it get out? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, how do you get out? Um, was it everybody was into that? Like, I just wonder, you know, like, we talk of the churches of this unified Catholic church, but I wonder if they were more, you know, family churches, small churches going on back then. Yeah. Or if all of them were contaminated with politics and whatever was going on. Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. Well, like we saw last week, there were not uh, schismatic Churches, the Donatists, 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 the Donatists. Remember that the, the uh, they they wanted to strive very much to keep the Catholicity of the Church, the universality of the Church, and so um, so yeah, when they would make, uh, you know, when they would get together and they'd have councils and they would vote on it and would say this would be. Uh, what it would be, these apocryphal books count. And that's what basically happened. The, the, the apocrypha was, the apocryphal books were included because of Jerome's translation and largely he kept them in 
Um, he classified them as something separate. But the church said, yes, those are it. And so there, you didn't have a lot of families or groups of families and stuff kind of going on their own saying, ah, you know. Did, did, I, did I hear you correctly say that one of the arguments that Jerome had was that when he went to go get the Hebrew and Aramaic scrolls from the Jews, they said, here, and the Apocrypha was not included in it. And that that's was, correct. That, that was his argument. Yes, that's, that's correct. The Hebrew scriptures did, were only included those, the 39 books that we would have as the Old Testament. Yeah. Which would make sense because he went to the desert. He went to met, the, he went met, source. Met to the source. He learned Hebrew, you know, yep. from a guy who was a trans, you know, uh, you know keep going with that word. word. <laughs> he was a trans. He went to a Christian. Yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, he, I, like I said, I think he was kind of, you know, focused mm -hmm. kind of guy. Yeah, Charlie. Just as an observation, um, purgatory, praying for the dead, I, I think is really a cruel belief because, uh, you know, Paul was asked, what must I do to be saved by the jailer? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ yeah. and you will be saved. Purgatory says, no, that ain't true. Right. You don't know if you're saved. And that's very cruel because you, you uh, if you're a part of that, you go through life saying, man, I haven't done enough. I don't want to die now. And, you know, you'd always be on the edge. I yeah. may not make it. Yeah. And even on your deathbed, how would you know? Well, there's, uh, that's one of the sacraments, I guess, when you're in the yeah. last rites. Uh, yeah, last rites. Yeah. You know, so it's, it's really cruel to a person's faith. Yeah. It's what yeah. keeps people in their seats there. I think. Yeah. I mean, the I think when I, Kim and I were doing counseling before we got married, the pastor said, well, do you believe that you're going to heaven? Well, I don't know. Like, I think that's up to God. Like, I don't have a, you know, you don't have any confidence in it? No. Like, I, seriously, at that point, like, no. Yeah. He's like, you can have confidence. You don't have to. But growing up Catholic, there was no confidence necessarily. Yeah. I mean, you know, maybe a little, but they didn't preach that to you for sure. Yeah. But I think that does keep people in the seats. Yeah. You know, I got to I got to be at church every Sunday so mm -hmm. I can get communion and I can get my last rites and I can do this and I can I can do all these things to get me into heaven. Just like Islam has their pillars and their you know. Everything to keep people in the seats. Yeah. You know, like same thing today. Well, if you keep coming to my church, sooner or later you're going to get that bank account that's going to grow. Keeps people there. The uh, we're, we're not in the Reformation era. Mm -hmm. And the Counter-Reformation, which the, the Catholics were like, what, what's going on here? So, some, <laughs> so they had a Counter-Reformation at the Council of Trent. And I believe that there was a cardinal right around that time, the Counter-Reformation the counter era. And um, and I believe he was asked, which is the what's the greatest heresy of the Reformation? What's the greatest heresy of the reformers? And he said, assurance. They preach a gospel 
and people actually believe that they are saints and can go to heaven. Pretty, pretty telling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he says, that's the greatest heresy. Any idea that you can actually be assured of your salvation. Uh, Cardinal Bellarmine. Yeah, I used to run against a high school named after, Catholic high school named Bellarmine. <laughs> named after that dude. I think too it would be cool for a family to have to pray like that. Like praying on yeah, when you mm -hmm. stop praying. Right? Yeah. What if you didn't really like that person? How hard are we going to pray? Yikes, Jen. <laughs> well, I had a nurse that I used to work with that her husband was Mormon. She was a Christian, but he was Mormon. And he said to her, well, I know you won't go to the temple and do my temple work for me. I'll have to get somebody else to do it. Because she didn't believe it. She was like, that's not how it works. But that's what they believe. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. yeah, so much know. temple work to get to heaven. Afterwards. Yeah. Josh, did you have anything? No, no, no. I was, was trying to remember that quote about the coin and the something, something. The soul, oh, soul yeah. Purgatory, don't believe. Yeah. Oh, yeah every, time when, every time a coin in the coffer springs, I may oh, be mixing it. up the, an rings, angel gets its it, wings or something like that. <laughs> that's what a bell rings. Yeah. Um, a soul from certain purgatory springs, yeah. Let me read one more paragraph to close here. And this is also from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. Because even though we talk about um, even though we were talking about translations, and um, you know, Augustine was was seemed to be arguing for the inspiration for our translations, at least for the Septuagint. I was, I'm not saying he was arguing that for every translation. Um, and I, I think in reaction against Augustine, we would say, no, the original manuscripts are what's inspired. Well, then, what do I make then of my translation that's, you know, on my nightstand? Can I be confident in that? Um, this, I, I like how they, this is a couple paragraphs from what I read earlier. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing uh, of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God, okay, and by his singular care and providence kept pure in all ages, and therefore authentic, so as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal to them. So meaning, if we can, we're going to debate about the meaning of something, we should, we should go back and look at the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. But, because these original tongues are not known to all peoples of God, who have a right unto an interest in the scriptures, and are commanded in the fear of God to read and search them, Therefore, they are to be translated into the vulgar language. Common? Not. <laughs> they are to be translated in the vulgar language of every nation into which they come, that the word of God dwelling plentifully in all, they may worship him in an acceptable manner and through patience and comfort of the scriptures may have hope. So, what's our final authority? Well, the, the true... Authority is the scriptures in the original languages as we have them. The Lord in his sovereign uh, providence has, has guided, has protected the scriptures and brought them to us. Uh, but because they're foreign to us, if we can acquire the languages, we should. But if it's foreign to us, we should uh, definitely commit them with care and diligence to, to translations. And then the word that you have there in these translations 
is the word of God. Minus the passion. The message. Maybe the message. <laughs> but but um, we can have confidence that these are indeed our, the scriptures. These are God's words to us. Amen? Amen. The message doesn't claim to be a translation, though, does it? It claims to be a paraphrase. It does claim to be a paraphrase. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that two different things? I would think, because yeah. the translation it tries to be very accurate to the original, but the message is not even saying we're trying to be accurate. We're kind of yeah. trying to make it sound readable. Yeah. Well, and back to what Pepe said, every translation is an interpretation. You to, to go from an original language to a receptor language is going to require... There's no secret decoder ring where there's an exact match from language to language. So you are already on a continuum of paraphrase. Is, is, it, is it going to be a lot or is it going to be very, very little? Um, but you're... So the, the distinction between a translation and a paraphrase is just describing two different points on a continuum that's of the receptor language. It's different in the... the I think that's a good visual way of, of thinking about it, that how, how far away are we getting from the original? Yeah. And, yeah. and the, the translators of ESV, NIV, try to go back as far back as they can. Yeah. I, I think there are other translations and paraphrases that they, they didn't even try. They took, <laughs> they took something and... You know, made it easier, to, dumber to understand. Mm -hmm. It almost went this way, further away from. Yeah. Uh, the continuum is a, is a visual that I can latch my brain onto. If God uses the message to reach someone's heart, they're going to go back to one of these. You know, hopefully. Yeah, hopefully. Oh, yeah, yeah. If, if they truly are touched, they're going to go, oh, I, I need to read the, the, the uh, you know, closest account I can. Yeah. Or they go, oh, oh nice story. <laughs> All right, let me close the prayer. Next week, Islam, I promise. It is in the schedule for next week. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you that you have, um, by your providence, have preserved your word, that you've spoken to your people. You, uh, you commanded it even um, uh, in, uh, among your people in the ancient of times to have it written down. And we are so grateful that we have it here before us, even now. Um, we, we know uh, that you do, in fact, speak to us through it. Um, and knowing that, may you inspire us to seek it out daily, to read it, um, to seek to understand it, and to hear uh, from you. And so, God, help us to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Have a good evening.